News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's say good morning to our Raji Sohal. Hi, Raji. Simi. How are you doing? I'm doing really great today. You know, you are? Yes. I know the news has been dire in the last <laughs> several weeks. So yes. I'm doing everything I can to be positive. I'm scouring and searching for good news everywhere I go. It's hard. I'll be walking down the street and literally I'll be like, oh, look, there's a new, there's one new flower popping up over there in that nook. <laughs> I'm going to embrace and make that. It make my day. Yes. <laughs> yes exactly. I'm do, maybe we should do that for this time of the morning. We should do a good news segment. All the good news that we can find out there to help people start their day. I think that would be fun. I love it. I love it. We need good salve on us every morning. We certainly do, right? I know that a lot of people are excited looking ahead, like Gord was talking about, to the 15th, which is next week, five days from now, when we move into the next stage of openings of things. I mean, you can go to a movie. Are you ready to go to a movie? So I just watched, I was waiting, uh, bated breath for that Cruella film to come out. The remake of, um, or the next, uh, the origin, origin story, story behind Cruella yeah. um, from 101 Dalmatians. And it is incredible. I watched it twice. What? Yeah. The wardrobe is insane. The costumes are just gorgeous. The set design is. The acting is on point. I really enjoyed it. And I don't watch a lot of movies twice, but it was just just visual eye candy. It was eye candy. And so I watched it twice. But you know, then I realized I watched it twice because it wasn't satisfying to watch it on a small screen. That's what happened. I shouldn't have watched it on my little TV. I I needed to watch it on the big screen with other people. I needed to see the grandeur, the size it's meant to be, the size it was made for in the theater. So I will say like theaters. the one movie like I had watched recently, which was that, um, you know, Godzilla versus Kong, which was a fabulous movie. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I loved it, but I also w- watching that thought, oh, I wish I could watch this on the big screen because I mean, you want to see two giant monsters fighting each other on the big screen. So I also felt that for you, it was Cruella. For me, it was Godzilla <laughs> versus Kong. But I, I think, you know, maybe people will be ready to do that. There's not a whole lot out right now, um, you know, to go and see that you might need need the big screen experience, but I'm sure pretty soon there'll be all sorts of great movies, right? Back in the movie theater for people. Yeah, we're at that point now where I think like, yeah, does Cruella really warrant the big screen or am I just so desperate now, right? I mean, Godzilla does because of the sound design too. Like that would be pretty incredible in a theater. Um, I think... I'm so curious to see like how quickly people will be rushing back because theaters are allowed to open on Tuesday. That, that's... that's in a couple of days, that's yeah, unbelievable. Five days. Yeah, I'm so not I even d- ready. I wonder if people are ready. Are, are you ready? We should ask people, are you ready to go see a movie? Um, you know what? Let me know. Simi at cknw.com. There's some stuff out there that people could pay to go see. But I wonder, I mean, would you pay to go see the hitman's wife's bodyguard with Ryan Reynolds and Selma Hayek and Samuel Jackson? Because <laughs> that's what's available to go see, one of the movies. But you know what? People might just be so anxious to get back out there, these movies might just be successful by default because it's what's available and people want to go, right? Absolutely. There are restaurants in my neighborhood that I wouldn't have gone to pre-pandemic that now I'm like, you know what? I'm going to go there just to support them as soon as uh, their doors open because some are still closed. 
Uh, let me ask you too. We were talking earlier. We got an email from Patsy, so I hope Patsy's made it to work all right. She works at VGH uh, about having a postponed Christmas party. She's having in August. She's planning a a Christmas party that she wasn't able to have at Christmas time. So she's doing oh the whole gosh. thing: Christmas cookies, all of it. So, I did you it. have any postponed celebrations that you are now going to reschedule? We had started to. We had started to say, oh, this is too big of a deal. We need to, to wait. But then we thought, ah, who knows how long this thing will go on. So we just did everything. We did everything low key. And our kids are weird for it. They literally don't know how to be with other people. Um, so so that's unfortunate. But I'm sure they'll get it back, their social skills, uh, pretty quickly once we see everyone. But I have several friends, actually, that furloughed big birthdays. I had a friend who turned 30, and she really wanted to celebrate with lots of her closest friends, and uh, which if you're 30 is like 20 people. Um, so she furloughed her 30th birthday. I have a friend who furloughed her 40th birthday celebration, and both are intending to totally just celebrate them six months and eight months off the actual birthdays. Oh, that's uh, because nice. Because they want to celebrate with other people. But I love Patsy's idea of doing Christmas in summer. Christmas is incredible anyway. So I feel like we need to spread that joy around the whole year regardless. I found that so. there was always, I used to always before my, before it feels like the house got too chaotic and people grew up and moved away. I always do Christmas, not Christmas, but like turkey dinner in summer. Just one, because at that point, it's been like six months since you had one. So why not? Turkeys are usually, you know, you can find them on sale somewhere. I probably had one in my freezer and I would do turkey dinner in the summer. This feels like a good summer to do that. Just to remind us, you know, have some people over, have a turkey dinner. Totally. Just have some people over, yeah. period. I think it's going to be such a treat to have people who you don't see every single day in your home. Yes. It's going to be such a treat. It will be such a treat. Um, and you know what? For the most part, maybe a lot of us will be uh, fully vaccinated because we know that the numbers for second vaccinations are now outstripping the numbers for first doses. So we are really moving along and getting people fully vaccinated, which is good to hear because if you hear about having to do these lotteries and incentives elsewhere and you think hopefully we're not going to have to do that simi i cannot with these lotteries i can't. cannot no i cannot <laughs> i'm just like are we that desperate to get people vaccinated well, yeah. like don't people get it that they win a vaccine like we we want oh, to get nature. a vaccine. No, it's human right? nature, Raji. I think people start to see things opening and they're like, oh, well, things are going back to normal. I don't need to make this effort now to go and get this, right? Oh, For whatever no, reason, they just think, no, no, we're good. We're good. I don't need. To. And it, immediately their thoughts turn to barbecues and summer fun and movies and all of that. And they don't think about, I better get this vaccine or we're going to end up back in the same place again. Oh, get the jab, get the jab, get everyone you know to get the jab so we can just get on with it because it's all about urgency, right? Like it doesn't even work unless we get it soon enough and enough of us get it soon enough. You know, people are, I'd hate to mention it, but we, people are dying. They're literally dying for vaccines in other countries. And here we're like, oh, I, I could maybe get it and win a golden ticket afterwards. I mean, these countries are happy to just win the jab. We yeah. need to do better. Well, and the sooner the better. I think in BC, we're doing a great job, though. I think in BC, that hasn't been the issue. But look at it in Manitoba, right? Aren't they offering up a lottery now in Manitoba? Yes. Yeah. They launched a nearly $2 million lottery as an incentive for people to go out and get that job. Um, I'm glad that we haven't needed that in BC, that people are getting vaccinated on their own. But um, gosh, I mean, 
extra bonus money on top of the vaccine, they're very lucky over there. I know. Isn't the bonus just we're allowed to go back to doing the things that we were doing before, right? It is. And you know, Simi, this whole time I've been closely watching what's been happening in the States and and the issue with the uh, vaccine hesitancy is through the roof there. It's It's a major concern. And as we all know, the vaccines don't work unless enough people get them. So I, I've been curious how that would play out here. And it's hard when you read a news story about people who, you know, follow the conspiracy theories and whatnot, and they're avoiding the vaccine because of misinformation. You see that and then you see what's happening in the States and you're not sure, are we getting enough people vaccinated? So I have been so glad to see that BC people are smart and we're doing it, getting vaccinated. Yes, I know. I love that too. And hopefully that continues. Uh, But we'll see for right now for Manitoba being the only province, it sounds like in Canada that is doing this lottery route and they're offering each. So each lottery draw they're doing, it's going to be open to people 12 and up who've received two doses on or before September 6th. And they've got all these prizes of $100,000. They've even got 10 draws for $25,000 scholarships for people age 12 to 17, Raji. So they, they, they're definitely encouraging the kids to get vaccinated too. Okay. Now that you mentioned that one, I might reconsider moving to Manitoba. <laughs> Think yeah. about my kids' yeah, right. in the future. That post-secondary <laughs> education is expensive. Mm. All right, thanks, Raji. We'll check in <laughs> with you a little later. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, they are still months away from having a convention to make the choice, but the BC Liberal leadership race is starting to get a bit more crowded. MLA Michael Lee officially joined the race yesterday evening, so he, along with Kevin Falcon, Gavin Dew, and Ellis Ross, and maybe others yet to come, will be vying to replace Andrew Wilkinson. So joining us now to talk more about why he's getting into the race is Michael Lee, the BC Liberal MLA for Vancouver Langara. Thank you for being here. Well, good morning, Simi. Thank you for having me on. Okay, why did you want to do this? Why would you want to be the BC Liberal leader? Well, over my life, when I started working in the community with Youth at Risk and other community organizations, I really had a strong commitment to service. And that was before I came to public office in 2017. I know that coming out of this pandemic, our party and our province is at a critical tipping point. The world is changing fast, and another attempt at a quick rebound by the party or the continued ways of the NDP in terms of just growing government solves everything, that kind of approach will not be what's best for how we're going to get to a better future for this province. So I'm running for the leadership of the BC Liberal Party because I want to serve and make an impact. I'm going to do the much-needed rebuild for the party and the province with bold plans and actions that will reset our course here in BC to ensure we have a real foundation that will serve us for generations to come. Now, why do you think, though, people have turned away from your party? This is actually one of my first focuses for the campaign, which is to restore trust with the BC Liberal Party. I know that uh, many have lost that. And that's where I'm standing from a place of values around integrity, uh, truly listening, my efforts to rebuild and unite the party to broaden our appeal with real change. To do that. And I think that that's been because our focus of our party has been seen to be uh, too narrow. In 2017, uh, many thought that we lost government because it was just about jobs, the economy, balanced budgets, and AAA credit ratings. And that's not the case. We know that the BC Liberal Party cares. It has a strong record over many years of good governance for this province. I have a bigger vision for that as we go forward. 
And we need to include more diverse voices and be a more balanced and inclusive party to move forward in the years to come. You were part of the last Basie Liberal government. Like when you look at what was going on during that time, what do you wish that that government had done? What do you think would have made a difference to how the party is perceived now? So, Simi, I came forward in 2017. Uh, I was actually uh, part of the tail end of that government in one sense. I was the parliamentary secretary for affordable housing for three weeks. Uh, but other than that, uh, I came forward to bring renewal to the party and to the team and to serve in government. But we didn't continue in government in 2017, as we all know. Uh, I know that uh, as we go forward as a party and a government, that we continue to stand for fiscal responsibility and accountability and transparency and wanting to ensure that there is that balance accomplished with concerns about lowering our carbon footprint, recognizing that we need to continue to innovate in our healthcare system. And we've seen so many challenges, of course, that the COVID pandemic has, has presented. True reconciliation with Indigenous peoples uh, and true partnership to move forward with a sustainable, innovative and responsible resource sector in our province. Right, but can you point to anything that was done the last time the BC Liberals were in power that you think should have been done differently? Isn't that what people want to hear? Well, I think that coming forward, uh, as I mentioned, I think our focus in the eyes of voters became too narrow, and people didn't really feel like the BC Liberals cared, and we did. There was a lot that uh, was done during that period, And I believe that there's a lot that can be done in the future in terms of the rebuild of this party and uh, what we stand for. And that's what I'm going to be speaking to in the months to come here during this leadership race. But what about like housing affordability? What about money laundering? What about those issues? Well, I think that you have the money laundering inquiry that's being conducted and that's the review that's there. Obviously, uh, as we go forward uh, with housing affordability, that's a real challenge, and there's uh, a need to increase supply and work with municipalities to get that supply there. I also believe the transportation critic currently that we ensure that we have a strong infrastructure build to open up a new supply. There's reasons for why when a provincial government puts in health care, uh, transportation, education dollars into a community, we should be involved more in that regional planning to ensure that uh, those taxpayer dollars are, are put to good use and ensure that we are getting the right density around transit lines, for example. Right. Now, Mr. Lee, that's almost exactly what, you know, Premier Christy Clark said about dealing with housing affordability five years ago, about working with municipalities and increasing supply. What else should we be doing? Like, do you believe in the foreign buyers tax? Do you believe in the speculation tax? Do you believe in the registry? Simi, in terms of how I'm starting this campaign as we go forward, it is about, uh, How do we do things a different way? And so in the months to come, as I listen to voices uh, around our party and do the engagement sessions that I tend to do, uh, this will be uh, the topics that I'll be getting into in the months to come in terms of the policies that we need to move forward with as a party and as a province. And that's what I'm looking forward to do. So all of those topics will be some things that will be things that I'll be speaking to. But right now, in terms of how I'm starting my campaign, it's all about Uh, the values that I bring in terms of restoring trust to the party and integrity, as well as reaching out to all those diverse diverse voices that we need to bring back into the party itself. And what do you think about the idea of the name change that was floated by Kevin Falcon? Well, I'm leading uh, this effort 
to rebuild the party. And that is uh, going to be a, a hard work to do so. Uh, it's more than just about rebanding the party itself. Uh, we need to truly broaden our appeal, and I want to bring about real change to do so. The name is certainly an important component to the rebuild, but that's something that we're going to need to involve the members with. And as we go through this process over the next eight months, it's a true marathon of a race. We'll be consulting with members about that and also knowing that uh, what really matters right now is what we stand for and what values we share as, as BC Liberals. Well, thank you very much for your time on that this morning. Well, thanks again for having me on, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. So you may have seen the news, the announcement that BC is making a child care registry public and inching towards expanding the system. So are we making progress towards offering up better child care options for parents and caregivers? Because this is going to be key to getting people back into the workforce, right? We have done things very differently for the last year and a half. Well, let's talk about the changes now with the help of child care advocate Sharon Gregson. Good morning, Sharon. Good morning, Simi. Now, I know that some of these changes that were announced yesterday, what you've been calling for them for, what, 10 years? That's right. We've been calling for legislation since 2011 when the $10 a day plan was first released. And it came from the Coalition of Child Care Advocates and the Early Childhood Educators of BC, our two groups, put forward a plan on how government could move from the chaos that exists in the child care sector to a, a public system so that all families can access child care when and where they need to. So what are these changes then? What can parents expect? So let's just start by saying that these, the, the two pieces of legislation are not actually transformative, but they are a step in the right direction. So they're making it easier for early childhood educators who move from other provinces or other places around the world to get their ECE designation in British Columbia and start work. So that's a great it's a great thing in places like Whistler. That's always been a long-standing issue. Um, it makes it easier for the minister responsible for child care to put a, a cap on fees so that affordability doesn't get higher and higher and more outrageous every year. So it does some things that are, are very good, but it doesn't actually move immediately to the $10-a-day system, the universal system that British Columbians are expecting. Right. Is this the time to do that? I know for a lot of people, getting back into the workplace is going to be critical. Childcare is going to be critical. Is this the time to move on it? This is absolutely the time to move on it. We've needed, we've needed $10 a day childcare across this province for decades. And now even more so when women are looking to get back into the workforce, when uh, you know, women have been hardest hit by the impacts of the pandemic. Um, gender equity is struggling like never before. Women have been put back to the, where they were with employment in the 80s. This is absolutely the time that the provincial government should be taking the new federal dollars that are on the table for them and building the $10 a day system. Just tweaking the existing status quo is not acceptable. Uh, we need transformative change so that families can find childcare when they need it. It's $10 a day, and early childhood educators are, are well paid. That's what we need. Were you a little disappointed then to hear about the announcement yesterday that it was didn't go far enough? We had hoped it would be more transformative. Um, we had we're we're counting on Premier Horgan and his staff um, to honor their their commitments, their promises over two elections to implement the ten dollar a day plan. Um, this is a small move in that direction. Um, 
there have been other small moves in this direction, but it's really what's really successful for families is getting into a ten dollar a day program. That's what families want, and educators need to be well paid in in the services they're providing. So we're looking to the premier to deliver on his election commitment. Right, but you know what? It's been all, what coming up almost a year on the election. How close are we to getting those election commitments? It will, re- well, the BC budget was a complete disappointment for childcare. They only delivered 16% of what they promised um, as far as the, the dollars. So the really where, where the rubber hits the road is what BC chooses to do with the new federal dollars that are coming because the federal government for the first time is really putting serious money on the table because they understand that Canada's economy needs childcare. And so we really have to watch carefully what BC does with those bilateral negotiations and how they choose to spend the the new federal dollars. Right. So yesterday was nice, but you expect more. We expect more, Premier Horgan. We expect you to deliver on $10 a day childcare for BC families. All right, Sharon, thanks for your time on that this morning. My pleasure. Bye for now. This is Mornings with Simi. More than 185 people have been arrested in the area of Ferry Creek on Vancouver Island in protests against logging in the area. One of the big concerns being, of course, the harvesting of old growth trees. Well, yesterday, the provincial government officially announced a two-year deferral of old growth logging in Ferry Creek and the central Walburn Valley for two years. And that came at the request of local First Nations. So what does this mean for the future of logging operations in the province? Why is this situation suddenly so important and unique? Joining us now for more on this is Katrine Conroy, BC's Forest Minister. Thank you for being back with us this morning. Uh, good morning, Simi. Happy to be here. Why is this so significant? Well, I think it's significant because we it's showing that we are continuing to move forward with deferrals of old growth. We already started that last fall with 200,000 hectares, and we are continuing to move forward. And it's, what's really important is it's about reconciliation. It's about he- listening and hearing what the Indigenous nations' wishes and needs are and what their wants are, and then and acting on it. And it's part, it's the number one recommendation in the old growth report, the strategic review that was done last year, that said that the first recommendation was to engage in those important government-to-government discussions with Indigenous nations. And that's just what we've done. And, and this is a result of it. So this protects about 2,000 hectares of forest. Is that enough? Well, yes, it protects about 2,000 hectares. It, it's what the, um, the Indigenous nations asked us to protect. It'll protect uh, uh the Ferry Creek watershed, um, which is just over 1,100 hectares in size, as, as well as you said, the um, central wall brown area, which is just over, uh, also over 11,000 hectares. So it amounts to 2,000 hectares, and, and it definitely it does protect the old growth within those areas. Okay, and what happens to the forestry company, Teal Jones, here that was allowed to log the area? So there's a, a legislative process uh, that uh, called de- when the deferrals are, are allowed, and and so what we do is there's, there could be compensation um, that could come forward in a number of years, depending on how long the deferral is for. And it, it's dependent on, on the scope of the deferral. So, um, And they've agreed to work with the uh, Indigenous nations on their 
uh, resource management plan, and and they will um, they do have some uh, roads in there that as part of their license they they need to maintain that they will um, probably be deactivating some of those roads because they have to keep them the roads safe for people at, you know and for the area and for the environment the you know the watershed and because you can't have culverts that are sitting. Uh, not being maintained for two years and you could have them plugged, there could be a washout. So they, they have a legal responsibility to maintain or deactivate the road. Is this a blueprint then moving forward? Like if you want to log in this province, do you have to look to this and say this is what the future looks like? Well, actually, I think the Premier, he's been really clear with, with people in this province that, uh, you know, we're moving forward on reconciliation. And, and he asked uh, uh, com- forest companies to reach out to Indigenous nations on if they had a tenure on the nation's traditional territory and, and reach out to work with them on, on, you know, in what way the nation wanted to work with them. And, and some companies have done that. There have been some companies who entered into partnerships with Indigenous nations and some companies who are talking about, you know, re- respecting the right that the, the nation wanted the area deferred. And, and you know, that was all the conversations that were had in the nine deferrals that were done last September. And, you know, because that's what's important to remember. It's not, you just can't defer. You have to, you have to number one, have those conversations with Indigenous people. You have to look at the tenure holders and, and what their license has. You have to look at the workers and the communities. You know, there's there's many forest-dependent communities in this province, so we also have to to think about them. And then there's also the the environmentalists, the biologists, the scientists, the people who want to have a say and and have some really good input on on areas that should be deferred, the areas that are critical. And so it's it's a it's not it, it's a process. Right. Well, but what yeah. about the protests then? Do you think uh, does this put an end to them? Is there a discussion with this? Do you hope this puts an end to it? Well, you know, I really understand the passion of protesters. I've done some protesting myself in my days. I never broke the law, but I, I have done protesting, and and I and I, you know, I share their desire to to protect these ancient forests, and 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 our government does. And and I, I what I really hope is is that they respect the 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 wishes of of the three nations who have asked to be left in peace to, so that they can they can develop their um integrated resource management plan and and they they the nations have even said that they respect you know the rights of individuals to to protest safely and and within the law but they, but they've also asked that their their protesting doesn't interfere with the you know the work that they want to carry out around a resource management plan right so you're saying that there's more steps to come here well, there there is. I mean, it's it's not. You know, it doesn't just end. It's it, you know the the nations are going to be doing a a plan on on how they want to see the the land managed. Um, they've reached out to get. They have their own experts and scientists and biologists helping them with that. They've also reached out to government, and we've offered them any help that they would like. You know, so it, it's a. It's an ongoing process. Our, you know, our forests are, are living, and and you know the the one thing that's always sticks with me, and I've said it before, and I'll say it again, is is about you know, and an indigenous chief said to me one time, he said, any decisions you make, you have to think about seven generations because I always talk about my kids and grandkids and he reminds me that it's seven generations we have to think about because you know we want to make sure we have a a sustainable well-managed forest industry but we also want to make sure we have those iconic ancient forests that our kids and generations from many generations from now can can walk in and and see and, and help to support our environment and our biodiversity in this province. Well listen thank you very much for your time on that this morning. Thanks, Simi. I really appreciate it. This is Mornings with Simi.
A Facebook post by a former Progressive Conservative Party candidate in Ontario has been getting a lot of attention. Raji Sohal back with us to tell us the story. Good morning, Raji. Good morning, Simi. Yeah, that candidate is Jeff Bennett, and he posted a super personal, very honest and refreshingly human post on Facebook um, where he admits to when he was running, he would go door to door and he witnessed tons of Islamophobia. He witnessed tons of comments that were just downright racist and that he admits that he benefited from that racism because, you know, he was running uh, and he's he's a white man. He didn't have to face all that stuff himself. His post took tons of courage, I'm sure, and he hoped a handful of people would read it, but a lot more did. Yeah, we're talking thousands of shares online. Yeah, lots of shares. It was nice to see that there were so many shares and not just likes, but the comment section was really rich. He got um, just so many, so much support from diverse groups, uh, from Muslims themselves, from a, a lot of people who are also like him, white and male. We're saying thank you for sharing, having the courage to share these stories because, you know, it's embarrassing to admit that you did something wrong, that you went door to door, you encountered this racism, you let it slide. And, um, and then you go and share that story that that took something. And so he's just had nonstop media interviews. It sounds like it too. Yeah. So he talks about letting it go, right? Like he should have said something in that moment. Yeah, he says that he doesn't feel he actually was brave, even though that's what people are calling him. I'm not doing anything brave here. And that's and that's what people have been saying to me all day. And I'm like, all I'm doing is 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 recounting my experiences. This isn't even me. This, this isn't me putting out a theory or an opinion or something that I'm hoping people will be accepting of. I'm saying I did this and this is what I experienced. I'm just retelling a story, but it saddens me that that scene is brave in, in some regard because we are in a society where it is completely unheard of for anyone running for political office or in political office to be completely honest about what they see, hear, feel, and experience. All, all of the leaders of the major parties are here in London and, and saying racism has no part in Canada. You know, Prime Minister Trudeau stands up and, and says that, but we've all heard him say that before. Mm-hmm. Like racism existed in Canada five days ago, five years ago, 25 years ago. And anyone could have predicted what every politician on that stage was going to say. You're listening to them talk and you, you can tell that a, co- a communications team had gathered and said, we think you should put it this way. Yeah, Simi, the anti-Muslim hate crime really shook Jeff Bennett. It shook him into action, like I hope it did for a lot of Canadians. And he started looking backwards at what he's done, what he did to contribute to that problem. And I feel like as a first step, that's important. And I think that's why thousands of folks admired his Facebook post. It's because he took the courage to take responsibility for his actions and owning up to them. Here he is again. Every time something horrific like this happens, we act as though oh my goodness, this, this is unthinkable. It's not unthinkable. It's happened before and it's happening every day. How did you move past your guilt or do you feel like you're still in that stage where you just feel guilty? <sighs> I feel like I, I, I'm still in that stage and I, and I feel like that's why I, 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 I have to try and do more and, and I, have to, I, I have to speak up, but we're all conditioned to be this way and we're never going to attack the underlying systemic racism and the overall problem if we don't all individually look in the mirror and realize that we play a part in it. 
Roger, that is so interesting because to me, this is the key to fighting the racism issue. And that is like people of color. We don't know what is said when we're not in the room. Right. Mm -hmm. We can't we can't argue with somebody or or fight back or push back if we're not in the room. But for the people who are in the room, like Jeff Bennett, you have to say something in that moment. Yeah. He mentions in his post that when you let a relative, it's grandpa, it's uncle say something racist, you let it slide. You're part of the problem. Even if you don't say anything like that yourself, you are part of the problem. You are, if you're silent, you are complicit. And so his post was, you know, it was intended for his small circle of friends and family. But I think it's gone viral because we just don't see people yeah. being honest in this way enough. We don't see enough people going, hey, I looked inside me. I looked at what I've done, what I've said, what I haven't said. Yeah. And I see I can do better. And so I think that's what's really inspiring about what he's done. I mean, he's, it's nothing heroic, Simi. Here's more from our conversation. And political parties don't want to be truthful about who their supporters are. And and we as Canadians don't want to be truthful about the kind of person Sir John A. Macdonald was. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's endless. We're, we're, we're full of crap. We're not being honest about our, our families, but, but that runs rampant in all sorts of things. Um, I'll tell you, and, Jeff, and we, what, what it does when someone's honest about racism, when they're honest about what they've witnessed or what they've participated in. So until white people are telling each other, hey, this is a problem, nothing changes. So I wonder, could you have written that Facebook post while you were in the Conservative Party? Um, I, 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 I feel like I, I could have, but they, they would have tried to, I, I, I wouldn't continue to be in the Conservative Party, but I'm, I'm already not in the Conservative Party. And I had my share of issues when I was a candidate. Stating real truths and being authentic to our, who you are and sharing your lived experiences is, is not encouraged in any political party. So, so we end up with these, these very cautious fence sitters. And I feel like I'm only in a position to write that and I'm, I'm getting attention because I'm a former candidate. If, if I were a current candidate and I made that post, and I was getting contacted by dozens of media outlets, as I have been for the last two days, the, the party would be losing their minds. They'd be contacting me, trying to tell me what to say in all of these instances. Oh, Roger, that sounds so sad. Yeah. You know, I want to be clear that I commend the Jeff Benefit, Bennett's of the world because, you know, he saw something wrong with racism in our society and he took a look inside. What is, you know, what, what could I do differently is what he thought. And he was willing to get uncomfortable with his own mistakes, take responsibility and, and change his ways moving forward. But before we hero worship here, Simi, this is what happened. He knocked on doors. His supporters said racist things to his face about Muslims and about their shared Muslim neighbors. And Bennett was vying to become a leader, right? A leader who guides his community. And, you know, rather despicably, he lacked the integrity in that moment to stand up to them and set the record straight. And if those people whose doors he knocked on respected him, as it sounds like they did, then he failed them. And he failed Muslims. And he failed the slain Muslim family in London, Ontario. No good citizen lets racism slide. Here's another piece of our conversation. You outline in your Facebook post a bunch of the racist remarks that you were witness to. Would you now, going forward, would you challenge those people that you encountered that would say racist things, that would say anti-Muslim and Islamophobic things to you? I think so. I like to think so. But again, I can't guarantee it because you never know how you're going to respond in a certain situation. And I get how politicians don't do it, too, because you're in a point 
Every vote counts. So are you going to somebody at a door says something racist, but also says that they'll support you or somebody comes into your campaign office and gives you a check for hundreds of dollars, which is much needed to try and get yourself elected. But then while you're having coffee, they make a a racist comment. Most, if not all politicians in this country don't have the courage to to stand up to that in that moment, especially if there's a check attached to it. and, And that's what's sad. And I didn't at that time because you're trying to get yourself elected. I like to think that I do now. I'm awakening. I, I you know, I, I, it's. It, it. So what you're describing is what's at stake. What's at stake is votes. So if you were in that position again, would you be willing to risk those votes? Would you be willing to challenge those people in their racist remarks? I, I think I would, but that's because I'm not so concerned with garnering votes anymore. But it took me a long time to get to this point where I'm not looking to get elected. So that's why I say it's it's hard to know what you would do if you were desperately trying to get yourself. What I'd like for you to know is that for someone that's a person of color, it's not a choice. I know. This, this yeah. conversation is just so interesting, Raji. Simi, we are having the same conversations across news stories these days, right? Anti-Asian hate, Muslim hate, Black Lives Matter. And, you know, when Jeff Bennett composed his Facebook post, he wanted his close circle of friends and family to wake up and acknowledge their own racism. And he thought about his friend, Ali Shabar, who had run in the election prior to him. Ali made a post saying, you know, stop referring to this event as unimaginable, because for me, it's very imaginable. And that breaks my heart because I, I, I it is privilege. It's it's. It's ridiculous that for 80% of people in the city of London, people like me, privileged white people, it seems unimaginable. Oh, my goodness. And then it's easy to just chalk it up as one crazy individual. But for BIPOC communities and for the Muslim community and for, for Ali and his family, it's not unimaginable at all. He lives it every single day. And that's, that's, that's what prompted the post. I, I came to the realization that 10 months apart, we went through the same actions. He knocked on the same doors that I knocked on. And his experience was very different than mine. And mm-hmm. I have never, ever approached a door. And I've knocked on tens of thousands over the years. And I've never walked up to a door thinking that I might get pushback based on my faith or the way that I look or my name. And he has to walk up every single driveway with that in the back of his mind. And he doesn't have any choice around that. And he has done nothing wrong to, to, to bring that on. Um, but, but nobody has ever made me feel as though my, my voice wasn't important. And I've come to realize that that's, that's my privilege. And that's, that's, that's not everybody and not everyone. And those are the voices that we need at the table. And like I said, we need another straight white middle-aged guy like me at, at, the, at the big table, <laughs> like, a, like a hole in the head. You know, but I love his honesty on that. I love it. Because yes. like, you know, we can't say that. If you're of color, you can't say that. But he can say that. Yeah, he can. So be Jeff Bennett, be honest, be human, admit your mistakes, (laughs) and then we can move on, right? Because the most important conversations are the most difficult ones to engage in. Oh, Raji, thanks so much for that. Appreciate it. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, we've been talking about food insecurity over the last week as part of a campaign to help the United Way promote their community food hubs. But you keep hearing that phrase, right? Community food hub. And you wonder... Well, what is that? Is it like a food bank? Is it different? Well, it's about dignified access to food. What does that look like? Well, joining us now is Simone Brandel, Program Director at Burnaby Neighborhood House. Simone, thank you for being here. 
Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Simi. Can you give us an idea of what has, what has need become like at Burnaby Neighbourhood House during the pandemic? Um, it's exponential growth over the pandemic. Uh, prior to the pandemic, the Neighbourhood House, um, we had one food hub, which was serving about 200 um, households. Um, and we had it in conjunction with the Greater Vancouver Food Bank. They would bring the food, we would give it out, um, and people would go home um, with that food. Over the course of the pandemic, we have opened up eight other hubs in different areas in Burnaby, community hubs that are serving kind of just those neighborhoods. And altogether, every week, we're feeding 5,000 people. Oh, wow. Okay. So when you say a community food hub, what does that mean? Like, how is that different from a food bank? So a food bank has a central distribution center. So, for instance, I'll give you the Greater Vancouver Food Bank. They are located um, on Winston in Burnaby, and people come to them. Um, The difference between them and a neighborhood food bank or a community food bank is we are a collaborative where, you know, we believe in community kind of coming together and building communities, you know, creating capacity for people to help each other. So one of the big things that's different about this is that we have neighborhood hubs, and that means that each neighborhood we've looked for a very specific um, group of organizations. So, for instance, um, End Homelessness in Burnaby Society operates out of the Southside Community Church in South Burnaby. They have a very particular group of people that have been coming to them for a long time. They know those people. They know who they are. At the neighborhood house here in North Burnaby, at the neighborhood house in South Burnaby, we work with the individuals and create a wraparound service. So it's not just about food security. It's about building the capacity in your community with volunteers, with people who know the individuals that live in those neighborhoods, and being able to help them out of what's happening to them. Right, because often it's hard, right, for people to ask for help. Oh my goodness. You know, we, you know, we've had such um, people coming in with, with just, they're humiliated. You know, we have one, one morning I was here at the North house and there was a knock on my window and I went to the door and there was a senior standing out there. It was an older man and he was angry and he said, I hear you guys have a food bank. And I said, yeah, um, you know, we operate a food bank every Mm -hmm. Tuesday here. He said, well, I never thought I would be in this situation. You know, I retired. I got a small job so that I could support myself and not have to ask for help. And I lost my job during the pandemic. And here I am. I have no food in my house, my house. And I I've never been in this situation. You know, I helped build this country. I never asked for help. And he had tears in his eyes. And all I could think of was he's my father's age. And it just, it made me cry because you see that these are people that are coming to the food hubs that have never come here before. But because of the pandemic, they have lost their job. You know, people's um, families that have, you know, really have been been on the edge. You know, there are two jobs they're working. They've got their kids in daycare. You know, they can just afford their rent. And then the pandemic hit. And then all of a sudden, they've had to come to a food hub because they can't afford both food and their rent. Um, And we're just seeing people coming and there's such shame attached to this. 
How do you then, Simone, deal with that? Like, how do you make sure that person gets the food that they need, but you want them to understand that they're supported? Yeah, so I think that's one of the things about a neighborhood house that's, uh, and the community organizations we're working with is we are about um, neighbors helping neighbors and we build relationships with people. So we know almost everybody's story that walks through the door. Um, we've dealt with these people. We understand what their needs are because we talk to them. You know, we have supports that come here to the neighborhood houses or to the organizations. The library comes, you know, other organizations that may be housing like progressive housing or, you know, other organizations that can help people out of the situations they're in. We bring them in and we have them talk to individuals. We tell people that, you know, we're here to help you, not just for food. We're here to help you for whatever your needs are right now. And we're going to move you out of this. Right. So are they receptive to that? Does it make a difference then in the way that you present that? Yes. Um, I think one of the things that's unique about a neighborhood house, I mean, we're, we're 25 years in Burnaby. And so we've been doing this a long, long time. It's our anniversary this year, 25 years. And we have made connections. The thing about a neighborhood house is that we're about building connections with people, um, reducing isolation, um, making sure that people um, know who we are and that there's a place for them. And like we have um, over this pandemic, we have built um senior delivery service for their groceries because we knew that at the beginning, you know, seniors were told, don't go out, don't go anywhere. Um, And so they were holed up in their homes. They were not wanting to interact with people, but then that caused a lot of problems because Mm -hmm. then there's the the isolation and you know what happens. You know, if you're a senior and you're isolated, sometimes health becomes an issue. You have no one to turn to because maybe you don't have family here. Um, And so what we did was we did two things. We created the program where we can shop for them. We bring them food if they need it. If they can't afford it, we take food that we have from our food hubs. Uh, we deliver to them. And then the volunteers that we um, have support them, they go once a week and we ask them to chat with them on their step. So they have a conversation. Pretty soon we find out from the volunteer that, oh, my goodness, that neighbor um, that we're delivering to, you know, they're not eating the food. They're losing weight. Um, Then the volunteer finds out that that person has osteoporosis, can't stand. So then we have a program that is community driven. That's, you know, we've got churches and other organizations like the neighborhood house um, cooking frozen dinners. And then we're delivering them to now that senior, for instance, so that all that senior has to do is pop it into the microwave and they have a fresh, healthy meal. And so when I talk about neighbors helping neighbors, we look for people that want to help neighbors because that's the piece that is a bit different about community versus a larger organization mm-hmm. having sort of a central warehouse is that we are there to get to know the neighbors and we find out their stories. We find out what is happening in their life and then we'll, we'll give them the supports to move them out of it. Um, and then eventually what's going to happen is this pandemic is going to be over and those seniors, those families will, will know that this is a place that they can come to and that they're welcome and that they're respected and that, you know, no matter what happened before, they can now be part of that giving back to community once they're able to. Simone, isn't it amazing, though, that it just takes um, a conversation, right? A casual really- conversation to learn so much about your neighbors. 
You know, it's funny. Um, my husband um, always laughs at me because we'll go walking and people will stop and talk to me. And by the time he's at the end of the block, I already found out, you know, that, that they have three children, that they, <laughs> you know, have come to the country, right. you know, two years ago. And he'll go, how did you get all that information? But, you know, all it takes is for you to ask. I think one of the things people don't think about is as long as you ask, people want to tell you, people want to interact, people want to connect. And I think that's one of the pieces um, that's been so amazing about having the funding that we've gotten from the United Way. We've been able to make those situations happen in every single community in Burnaby. I mean, nine food hubs, and they're all in different areas, and they all support different neighborhoods. Um, for me, that's the beauty of having a community hub. That's the beauty of having community involved. And that's what the neighborhood houses do. Like, that's what that's, our mandate is. Well, that's amazing. Simone, thanks so much for telling us about it this morning. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Oh, you do a great job. That's Simone Brandel, Program Director at Burnaby Neighborhood House. And boy, she explained it so well. And those amazing stories, it's happening in your neighborhood too. You probably have a neighborhood house. Maybe you didn't even know about it, but they are there and they are helping with the United Way Food Hubs to provide that help and support out there in the community. So for more information on uh, these community food hubs, this fundraising initiative that United Way is undertaking, just check out the United Way of the Lower Mainland online and you can help out too.